Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. And if you look back at all the mass shootings that we've had since 1982, a clear pattern emerges. Nearly all were committed by males. The recent shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida, sparked renewed debate over gun control and mental health. But the conversation around toxic masculinity and violence has also been brought to the forefront. And that's the topic that we're going to be uh, studying today on Noon Edition with uh, three panelists. Two are here in the studio. Jesse Steinfeld is the as sports psychologist and associate professor in the IU Department of Counseling and Educational Psychology. Bill Yarber is senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute and provost professor at the IU School of Public Health. And joining us from the University of Arizona is Jennifer Carlson, who's an assistant professor of sociology. You can join us on the air by calling in at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or you can call toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I'm very happy to have all three of you here in the studio, and it's good to have you back, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for being here. So we, uh, you know, this is just an interesting topic. I think everybody is trying to explore uh, what are the various uh, reasons why these things keep happening? And, um, you know, this is our, our first dive into, you know, masculinity and, and what it means that, that these shooters tend to be male and that uh, domestic violence seems to always be male as a perpetrator. You know, it isn't always, but virtually always. Um, so I, I guess I want to start with, with you, Jesse, and talk about, you know, from a sports psychologist standpoint, and you work with a lot of athletes, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, I would actually say violence in sports, there's a lot of testosterone on the, the field. I mean, can you just sort of give us an overview of, of this issue and if, you know, what you've learned in your time about why this might be? Yeah, I think masculinity is much more of a, uh, a dynamic of socialization, right, in terms of the experiences young men have, the messages they're conveyed in terms of what's acceptable behavior, what's not acceptable behavior. Um, from an athletic standpoint, on one end, we have participation in football and other sports that value instrumental aggression, right? And the ability to aggress against somebody else is valued and rewarded and applauded, um, but the need to compartmentalize that and turn it off off the field um, is something that has to be taught and learned um, in that sense. So the message isn't football players are inherently violent. The message is you're socialized to aggress um, instrumentally, and then you have to understand when it's appropriate to do so when it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that the a big area of my research is a, a member of the American Psychological Association's Society for the Study of Men and Masculinities is understanding the message that are conveyed in the ways that men are socialized, young men, um, through sport and through other uh, avenues. Yeah, can you talk about just broaden that out through other avenues? Because it seems like, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of men and women today are going into sports, mm-hmm. and, but the still men, there there's, seems to be this feeling that, you know, men are creating a whole lot more of the violence than women. Sure. I, and from a psychologist's perspective, a, a big piece of that beyond the socialization is uh, women are socialized to seek help for the problems. Men are socialized to rub some dirt on it, take care of it on your own, kind of hunker in and, and, and take care of yourself or else you're weak. And additionally, men are not socialized to express a wide spectrum of emotions. Women are socialized to be acceptable, to say, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm frustrated. Whereas men seem to be rewarded and socialized to say, I'm angry, and I'm angry. And what else is that? Well, I'm angry, right? And that's sort of narrowing um, of the expectations then spills over in some of these other areas that we see that are more problematic in terms of domestic violence or 
um, even so far as mass shooting. With other variables, of course, strongly play in that situation. But the idea of allowing an expansive set of opportunities for men to express themselves emotionally is a change we need in society, a piece of the change, of course, um, that will help uh, address at least part of this issue. Mm-hmm. Billy Arbor, your, your expertise is mainly in uh, sexuality, and uh, how does that sort of inter, um, you know, overlap with this issue that we're talking about? Well, uh, I would first say that what, how you articulate that, I think, is exactly correct, uh, uh, Jesse, is the fact that culture plays such a, an incredible role. I mean, it could be thought of as that masculinity and femininity aren't essential, that they're not inherently. Mm-hmm. That and the power of culture is so, so dramatic, and it begins very early. And we have what we call assigned gender. It's a boy. It's a girl. And we do all different things related to that. And in these expectations of what it is to be a male or to be female spill over into a lot of areas of life, like you talked about, aggression, but also it spills over into uh, very intimate areas like sexuality, of what it is to be a sexual male, what it is to be a sexual female. And... uh, to me, it seems like the, the identity, self-identity as, as a masculine man or feminine woman is becoming even more polarized in some ways. If you look at the leadership of, um, of the country, if you look at uh, prominent individuals in media or, or other, other organizations, yet it's being challenged. As we know that this gender variation is is something that's really dramatic and it's happening very quickly. And you know the the innateness, I mean, what are there's there's pop, some we used to at one time, I think there were a lot of innate differences between men and women. but as I think as time goes on, we're seeing sort of basically testosterone is it at the level testosterone's different. And all these other aspects are learned as you said, and they're learned very early. I think by age two, boys consider, you know, find out, well, here's what boys do and girl. And so very, very young in life. And so the way that we expose them to messages about what it's to be, I think is critical. And traditionally, those messages have been fairly narrow. And when that happens, then their expectation to be in a certain row and in a broader look at that, I think it minimizes their opportunities to be individual. Mm-hmm. And by minimi- and but we're seeing that being challenged by the whole range of gender variation, and that people are challenging the fact that they have a uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, I, I'm tempted just to ask you to respond to what you've heard so far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be great. Okay. Um, so thank you for having me on this uh, on this show. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's already been said. Um, just to kind of pull, uh, piggyback on this question of, you know, where society stops and biology begins, um, there's a lot of interesting work at the intersection of social science, uh, sociology of science, sociology of knowledge, that really it kind of questions whether, you know, even our ability to understand, quote, unquote, you know, the biological body is, is very much shaped by our understanding of gender. So, um, so there, there's actually a lot of questions about, you know, is there these, you know, questions about what's innate versus not innate, that a lot of that is, is very much uh, shaped by how we, you know, culturally understand gender. Um, but just to kind of go back in terms of, um, you know, this first point that Jesse uh, mentioned about sort of, you know, how men are socialized, boys and men, and girls and women are socialized. Um, and culture really playing this important role in terms of um, boys and men not having space to be vulnerable, to express fear, um, uh, to seek out support. Um, and I can say from my own research, you know, I'm a sociologist, so I think uh, both about individuals and identity, but I always want to link it back to um, social structures, so patterns of behavior, um, institutional arrangements, all of that sort of thing. And what I see in a lot of my research, for example, on public law enforcement is that it's not just that individual, you know, that boys and men may not be seeking out, you know, support, for example, but um, in the context of law enforcement, um, you can look at, uh, you know, data on, um, you know, the most dangerous professions, the most stressful professions, 
Um, law enforcement is not actually uh, the most dangerous profession. It is one of the most stressful per- professions. Um, and so when we talk about officer and, uh, officer-perpetrated shootings and um, officers that um, are killed in the line of duty, um, you know, so much of that is focused on the legal aspect. There is very little um, support within public law enforcement agencies uh, to deal with sort of the aftermath of being involved in, um, in these, these, you know, these kinds of um, shooting events. Um, and that's whether the officer is the perpetrator or, or the victim. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to think about, okay, so what does that do then in the context of law enforcement? Um, we see very high, you know, we see um, in some years actually more officer suicides than um, officer deaths in the line of duty. We see high rates of domestic violence among um, law enforcement. So really, um, it's not just about individuals being socialized. It's also been the, the institutional and organizational arrangements that reproduce the socialization and don't provide opportunities for, for you know, change in terms of being able to to, to seek out help, uh, to express vulnerability, um, and all of that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to also mention is that, you know, when we talk about, you know, in some ways, we're at a, a really exciting moment in terms of, you know, gender categories being destabilized, um, and, and, you know, th- there's a lot of movement in terms of really kind of recognizing gender as a social construction, you know, not just by sociologists and social scientists, but, uh, you know, more broadly. and. I think that, um, so, so I don't want to, you know, so I think there's an interesting tension here in terms of, you know, sort of um, what, you know, from some angles appears to be a very strict uh, set of norms about what, you know, what uh, boys and men should do and how they should act and, and, and what, their, what their expectations are versus, you know, other, you know, if we look at other corners of the social world, a lot of that being kind of bust asunder. Um, but one thing that, again, going back to sort of this, this you know, thinking about things from social structure uh, that I also think is important to think about is, is not just sort of are the norms changing, what do we think about norms, um, but also a mismatch between norms and institutions. And that's the piece um, that really has to do with the changing labor market. Um, you know, what are manufacturing, which is kind of the, the core foundation of breadwinning masculinity, um, those jobs are, are, are over. Uh, those jobs are not kind of providing the, the bedrock of masculinity that they, you know, did at one point in American history. Um, so I think that there's a lot going on both at the individual level but also at the social structure level um, to really sort of, uh, yeah, raise a lot of questions about what, you know, what's going on with masculinity at this particular moment in, America, in, in, in American society. All right. I want to give our phone number so you can join our conversation about uh, about masculinity today. You can give us a call at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, Jesse, I want to ask you, this term toxic masculinity is something we're hearing a lot now. Can you kind of talk about what that means and if it's an appropriate word that we should be using in yeah, I, I think I think I have a little pushback to it because I don't think it's a, a wrong thing by any means. I think it's meant. I think it's attempting to describe the outcome. Um, I think masculinity and plurally masculinities are enacted in many different ways. So I don't think that it's a static construct that is either good or bad. So the idea of calling it toxic sometimes allows it to be put in that category. Masculinities are enacted in different situations, um, in different ways you've been taught to respond. So masculinity in and of itself is about my uh, willingness to be who I want to be. And the point we were making earlier was that it's a constrained set and we're expanding it now. Um, I think that's a good thing. But back to your point about this sense of toxic masculinity really seems to touch on some of the negative norms expectations, right? The idea of settling your scores with violence or uh, being a playboy in, in multiple promiscuous relationships uh, equates to manhood. And some of these other dynamics that we think of in terms of the broad set of norms would, to me, constitute this sense of toxic masculinity. But my, my, my point is it's much more expansive. That's a subset of it. Um, and some of my research with football players, for example, looking at how they define their masculinity shows that you, we've done some cluster analyses and other things, and we find that component, right, that sort of kind of meathead component. I can call it meathead because it's my own people. But this sense that that exists, but there also exists other ways of being a man within this relatively constrained domain of football. So uh, men want to be different ways 
uh, of being. Want to uh, want to engage in different ways of being a man in that set. And there are subsets that are negative and what we might call toxic. Mm-hmm. Bill, uh, as you were talking, it just reminded me of uh, what we're doing in talking about masculinity and femininity is we're we're using categories mm-hmm. and and an analogy is uh, in the field of human sexuality. Uh, historically, and Kinsey's uh, research showed that this is, this is not true, but historically there were heterosexual individuals or homosexual individuals in a bipolar uh, kind of uh, categorization, and then he found enormous variation in uh, sexual behaviors and attractions. And one of the things that he, he said is that um, we seem to have a need to put people in categories and, and to put uh, them in labels. And when you do that, then already there's a certain expectation mm-hmm. or a certain belief about that, that person. And so an analogy might be uh, that we use this sometimes in sexuality uh, is uh, not to consider a person homosexual or bisexual or heterosexual, but sexual. Because what purpose does it serve to minimize it, to label it a certain way, when in a sexuality is a sexual fluidity. As a matter of fact, it could be changed. And so, you know, I think it's maybe hard to study something. It's hard to maybe to organize information without these. But in a provocative thought here is why do we even have the label? That they're a person, not necessarily a masculine or feminine person. But when we use that, some of the negative outcomes that are is that there's great expectations, like we have talked about, uh, of to be a masculine person. And so one way to look at that is um, why is it necessary to do it anyway? Or why is it necessary to fulfill that? And, you know, cultural deals with that in different ways. We have a phone call. So let's go, uh, to, let's go to Sarah from South Central Indiana. Sarah? Hi. Uh, this is, believe it or not, not a rhetorical question. This is just an honest question. And my question is, is why when, say, in the 1950s or 40s, when gender roles were certainly more rigid, you had broad access to firearms um, and, uh, you know, you would think it would be more conducive to kind of male aggression, why did you have fewer of these mass shooting incidents? You had a few, but they seemed kind of spread. And then, to me, it seems like starting in the maybe 80s onward, um, when you had gender roles starting to change, still kind of rigid, but starting to change, are we seeing more and more of these uh, incidences? And this is not a rhetorical question. I'm not trying to argue a point. I'm just asking an honest question, um, that when things would seem to be more um, peaceable or men could express themselves in different ways about their identity, why are we seeing more of these shootings? I'm going to uh, ask Jennifer to weigh in on that. She, Jennifer is an expert on, on gun politics, and, and uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think a big I, – I, my answer, again, kind of goes back to what, what's going on more broadly with social structure. What um, – you know, how do we make sense not just of individual men, but also what are their – you know, we've talked a lot about sort of the expectations for men, but also men's – expectation and this kind of goes into this question of you know entitlement and that sort of thing um but i think a lot of it has to do with um sort of changing um how do i say it uh so when you think about it and i talk about this in my book a lot which actually looks at concealed carriers were so in some ways very different from you know the the mass leaders who are you know engaged in in mass killings um, you know they're they're very very rarely gonna um you know be engaged in pulling the trigger um, and so what I see with them is actually gender mattering a whole lot, masculinity mattering, but in the sense of sort of, you know, that, that gun culture kind of emerges in response to this changing socioeconomic structure. Um, so you have in the 1950s, yeah, you have, um, you know, stricter gender roles for sure. Um, you also have an economic context that is buttressing those gender roles, right? So you have breadwinning masculinity, you have the white picket fence, and we know that that wasn't actually, you know, the case. Not all American men um, had access to that, um, but it was, you know, as far as compared to today, that um, that 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 social structure was much more sort of conducive to um, 
to breadwinning masculinity. It, it provided a foundation for that. If we fast forward now, um, you know, we have things like, you know, the Atlantic article uh, a couple of uh, years ago, you know, proclaiming the end of men precisely because of the erosion in these stable breadwinning jobs that really translated into men's role as provider. So I think that there's, you know, so there's a broader sort of socioeconomic shift that's happened. Um, and I think that that's where, again, thinking about how norms map onto norms map onto institutions and what institutions can actually buttress. So, you know, we can say we're actually at this really exciting moment where, you know, gender is open to change, but then that also means, you know, what does that mean for, um, you know, men who feel, quote, unquote, left behind? Um, and this is, you know, especially in Michigan where I did my research on gun carriers, um, this is something that came up a lot where the flyover states, we can't, you know, we're not, we can't depend on, you know, the, the breadwinning income that we could have, you know, depended on, you know, what our parents depended on. Of course, I'm kind of paraphrasing. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, and the other thing, I wanted to actually just uh, piggyback on to what was said before about toxic masculinity, because I think this might also, um, there might be a piece uh, to, to this as well. Um, so a lot of times when we talk about toxic masculinity, we talk about individuals who feel an expectation, you know, they feel they have to act in a certain way, they feel that they have to conform to particular kinds of norms. And I would actually say that that's a, that's a narrow way, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I agree with everything that's been said about, you know, that this is, that mas there are many masculinities and that there's many ways to be masculinities, there's many ways to be femininities, um, there's many ways to be gender that isn't about masculinity or femininity. Um, you know, necessarily. So, um, and I'm thinking of, about, you know, uh, gender non-conforming persons and that sort of thing. But going back to, to toxic masculinity, so there's the individual, you know, themselves, but then there's also toxic masculinity as sort of a lens through which to view the social world. So I would also argue that, you know, there's something about sort of, you know, when you hear stories of all of these warning signs that were ignored, all, and, and, you know, that red flags that were raised that were not taken seriously by authorities. Um, you know, the question really has to be raised, how much of that is not just, you know, uh, it, how much of that is sort of a permissiveness about, you know, that quote-unquote boys will be boys. And so things that should raise red flags because, um, you know, that should raise red flags are actually not raising red flags and that that is sort of a, a gendered dynamic there. So I think that's also something to think about with toxic masculinity, that it's not just about you know, people enacting it, it's also people enabling it. All right. Uh, Sarah, I want to thank you for your call. Oh, thank you. Appreciate uh -huh. it. Uh -huh. We've hit break time, so we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. And if you want to join us in the second half of the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also send us an email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking about um, masculinity as sort of in the context of 
the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years. Uh, we have three guests with us. One is joining us by phone from the, from the University of Arizona. Jennifer Carlson is an assistant professor of sociology. And also here in the studio, we have Jesse Steinfeld, who's a sports psychologist and associate professor in the IU Department of Counseling and Educational Psychology. And Bill Yarber, who's a senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute and provost professor at the IU School of Public Health. Again, if you want to call, join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. And you can also send questions to the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Jesse, just something we were talking about during the break, this idea of masculinity and when we are talking about gun violence, do you think that's more of a, of a cause or just the undercurrent. Yeah, I think it's it's a constellation of factors. And I think um, Jennifer made a real good point earlier about tying in the socioeconomic dynamic to it as well. You know, I think that the reality is, yes, men are almost exclusively perpetrators of the mass shooting dynamics we've seen. Um, but again, masculinity being a part and parcel contributor, not a primary cause. Right? So the idea of looking at aspects of masculinity are helpful, but it would be... Um, it would, would not be as effective if we didn't tie together some of these other pieces and the social structures that Jennifer's talking about also need to be uh, addressed as well. You know, I was just thinking, you know, as we talk about this issue, I mean, would we feel more comfortable if the next mass shooting is committed by a, somebody who isn't a man, by a, by a woman? I mean, what, what are we sort of supposed to make of this fact that basically men have been responsible for all of these? Do have a reaction to that? To me, a little bit of go, go ahead, Jennifer. Thank you. Comfortable at all with any sort of mass And I think that I, I, I mean, I think that what you know, I, you know, I, every time there's you know, obviously a mass shooting and there's these high-profile gun violence events, um, you know, the event is covered and then slowly, kind of, the conversation is spilled out over weeks and maybe months ahead. Um, you know, usually the news cycle is unfortunately pretty fast with uh, mass shootings, although this might be different. Um, but one thing that I think is a really important piece of the puzzle um, that uh, has been discussed to some extent, um, which is um, the relationship between gun violence and mental health. And the relationship is not between gun violence and mental health in the case of mass shooters. If you actually look at who's perpetrating gun violence, um, mental health is not a great indicator, except for the case of suicide. And when we look at who's committing suicide and who's increasingly been committing suicide with guns, um, it's middle-aged white men, um, particularly in rural areas. Um, so that's something that I think, you know, when I, when I, I yeah, so, so what, what, I guess another way to kind of respond to your question is, is less, um, you know, what, what, it would be a question of, you know, what conversation would I like to see out of a, you know, out of, in terms of gender with respect to mass shootings? Um, and I think that conversation is a conversation I'd like to see a lot more of. Um, because that gets us much more to this, you know, to what I think is, is an underlying issue with regard to this relationship between masculinity and violence and, um, and, and vulnerability and harm and, and all of these things. So I want to go to this question from Dakota, who on Facebook asks, in light of the fact that every mass shooter the last several years have all been male, what role, if any, does masculinity play in pushing men into violent outbursts? And how can masculinity be reframed to encourage men to express their negative emotions in more healthy ways? Jesse? Yeah, from a psychological perspective, in terms of thinking about uh, an angry young man coming into my office for, for therapy, Part of it, again, goes back to our discussion earlier about expanding the ways of expression, right? Anger's there, but also frustration and shame and a whole constellation of emotions that he, this young man may not have been so, um, socialized to see as a, a good thing to do. Uh, so I think helping him understand what the experience is and what it means uh, in, a, in a, again, a safe therapeutic space would be helpful. Now, we can't isolate those who we think are going to be doing so, right? So we need to go back further upstream and think about preventative ways and what message are we conveying to young men about ways to be a man, right? Being a man means being tough. Being man means, you know, um, being resilient. But being man also means being open and vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So I may drink beer, I may fart, I may be strong, mm -hmm. but I also may buy my wife tampons and I may hug my daughter and I may do all these other things that might have been seen as socially taboo for what a man does, but open up the expressive possibilities for what a man is, what a man does. And I think that'll help in this, uh, this problem that we're having in limiting men's uh, mm -hmm. expression, which then result in this uh, 
tea kettle boiling and the outburst uh, coming out in the form of anger and violence. You know, I think we're uh, obviously we'd like to have a, an immediate solution to to this problem as something that could take care of it, you know, in, in a short period of time. And, and there may that may be possible, but I think what we're seeing in our culture, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to look at it, you know, decades down the line. I mean, the feminist movement began to challenge a lot of these traditional gender roles, particularly the fact of that women are supposed to be the nurturers, uh, supposed to be passive, much more expressive. And then we see through a lot of different things like Title IX of women in sports becoming more strong and more aggressive. And then we've had this strong push that men should uh, adopt those kinds of traits of much more expressive. And then a part of that is women become, uh, adopting the traits of traditionally masculinity. And so in some circumstances, they bipolar, uh, looking at what's masculine and feminine is really you know, being challenged. In some ways, it's, it's, it's being changed. Now, culture pushes back on that sometimes. Uh, to remind that men have to be a man and certain expectations to be a man, certain expectations to be a woman. But I see, seems like particularly on the younger people, uh, more of a merging. Instead of calling a particular trait masculine or feminine, it's a human trait. And when these, it's less, when it becomes more challenging to differentiate between that, then, uh, uh, then I think that that's a positive aspect of... Um, minimizing the expectation to be a certain person in a certain way. And we've talked about that, and I think it's so dramatic and it's so powerful. I mean, there's a lot. To be a man, there's a lot of expectations. Provide and protect among many of those things. And if it doesn't, then you know, with the economic problems, and of course, there's outcomes. And so I think historically, and looking in the future, it'll be interesting to see uh, the um, challenging of gender variation that that will maybe, uh, you know, the outcome of that in, in society. There, there was this op-ed in the New York Times that said the boys are not all right. I'm sure you all saw it. But the author is talking about his own son and how he stomps up the stairs and he's frustrated and he won't talk to him about what's going on. So, Bill, maybe you can speak to, I mean, what as a parent, how, how can you start to change this? So <laughs> as you're dealing with young boys. Well, I mean, I think, of course, uh, it's very complex because the persons aren't isolated. I mean, certainly the the modeling at home of of gender role expectations to maintain a home and to be a parent modeling is I think is important. And but also, of course, uh, you know, their friendships and culture and the media. So there's a lot of challenges. I mean, there's a lot of reinforcement to to in the traditional gender roles. And it varies through time of how culture deals with the media and the leadership. And so um, I think parents can do certain things, uh, but uh, they can't do everything because of what they, they see by their, their environment. To me, uh, the modeling of home of, of both, if it's uh, male-female parenting, that you know that they share in gender roles, at least to begin starting, and then reinforcing. Uh, of the fact that uh, a male or female could do something that's not traditional in their assigned gender. So we, you know, we assign a gender, then we have the expectations. And I think a lot of parents are feel insecure about that. Because if my boy might be considered to be a sissy, if he likes to play with traditionally feminized kinds of toys or certain kinds of expressions. So we have to reinforce the variation. Let me give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or if you prefer, you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So there are a couple of different things that I want to ask about. And the, the first one, well, I'm going to put them both together kind of. Media. We talked. You mentioned media. How does media reinforce these these issues? And then, secondly, I guess I'm just going to ask about politics too, because you have mainly, you know, you have a small representation of of women in powerful political roles. Mostly men are in powerful political roles. How do you know, so? How do media? What's going on? What goes on in media today, and what goes on in politics today reinforce these uh, these 
specific gender roles. Jennifer, I'm going to ask you first. Um, wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> yeah. Um, media and politics. I mean, I think that there's, you know, obviously, I think media and politics, um, you know, we can think about the words that have come from, you know, Trump about, um, I mean, one of the most recent example is him, you know, proclaiming that if he was, you know, he would have been at the, the Parkland shooting, he would have run in, he would have been the hero, he would have stopped the threat, um, and all of these things. And so I think that there's, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, circulation of, of norms and expectations about, you know, what men, um, you know, what men should be, what, what men should do in, in the face of danger. I think part of that also is really seen not just in terms of, sort of these proclamations of, of how, you know, how Trump would act and how, you know, how someone would act in this, in this kind of uh, situation, but also the degree to which um, the officers that did not enter have been publicly shamed. Um, so, you know, they, the uh, sheriff in Brown County, um, you know, I think the quote was that he's devastated and sick to his stomach that the officer didn't enter. Um, and again, we don't, you know, I think that, that um, yeah, we're, we're still kind of working through that in terms of uh, you know, the, you know, the officer now has a lawyer and all of that, kind of explaining why he didn't enter the building. Um, but I don't think he said, because I was afraid. Um, I don't think he's been able to say that publicly. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that is a very powerful uh, kind of example of, you know, how these, how these expectations are really magnified um, in the in the media, I you know I could also say stuff about me too and politics, um, but I'll you know what I think we're going to get to me too in a later on in the program. Uh-huh. So I'll I'll talk okay. to you what others about the media. All right. Your interesting point you brought about politics and representation. Mm-hmm. I think about Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, mm-hmm. appointing his cabinet you know split half men, half women, and they are like, why are you doing that? And he's like, because it's 2015. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of just that simple response is bring in diverse perspectives and diverse patterns and you will get different outcomes, right? So our mm-hmm. Congress is, is largely represented by men and white, and white men, and we see different ways they engage each other, right, in terms of this sort of combative um, sense of winning a bill versus more cooperative sense of how can we get mutually beneficial outcomes for everybody involved. And I think, again, that's not a man or woman thing because I really respect what Bill's saying earlier about the, the categorization, this kind of false dichotomy we have, yet, it's much more of a continuum and it's more a socialization dynamic of how women have been socialized to handle problems and engage with each other that is more conducive towards cooperative outcomes than the way men have been socialized to compete and win and I got, I'm take, getting this bill at your expense versus let's, sh- let's shake it up a little bit, right? It's now 2018. Let's see what we can do with that. Mm-hmm. Bill, do you have any, uh, any thoughts about that? About the, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, you brought I, up the media. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, the social media, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's so powerful because it oftentimes uh, uh, reverts back to the traditional gender roles. And you don't see many exceptions to that, although exceptions of showing diversity in gender, gender roles is occurring more often. But uh, it's, a very, you know, it's a very, very slow process. Uh, and I, th- you know, young people are so much attached to the social media, and and that that um, the hours that they spend there, that there's bound to be some type of you know impact on what they learn about what's like to be a, a man or a woman. And so, uh, the, the power of that I think is dramatic, and the model having models of variation and models of diversity, models of men and women, in different types of leadership, but also in different types of responses. I mean, I thought that was a good insight to hear the fact that did this police officer or the sheriff, you know, uh, say I was afraid. I mean, that really would take a lot of strength for a man in a uniform with a badge to be able to say that. But I, I think probably that person certainly was. And, um, you know, that would be a, a breakthrough. So, again, this idea of... Uh, Challenging it, but being reinforced when when this is successfully challenged. Why is this masculinity so fragile? This idea of masculinity. I think we, we've kind of reified strength, and we've reified um, just do it self-resolve, and we've reified this sense of you do not ask for help or else you're weak. And when we have something that differs from that, the expectations are well. If you're not that, then you're weak. 
And I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem for us to not, for that person, yes, you should have gone in, sure, but was he afraid? Yeah. And is it okay for you to be afraid? Yeah. It's okay yeah. for you to be afraid, man. And you're not less of a man because you're afraid. That happens. So, yeah, we don't allow men to be vulnerable. And, you know, that shows vulnerability. That you're not qualified. And uh, the power of the, of the, of the expectation is so strong and it's being reinforced and uh, the fact that you're not supposed to show emotions, you're not supposed to ask for help, as you've said, uh, and uh, you're not supposed to be vulnerable. Because one trait of a traditional masculinity is you don't ask for directions. Mm-hmm. If you're so driving, right. you, know, <laughs> right. you know, you're supposed to figure it out yourself. And I, just as a person's story, I remember when I was younger, I was dating a person and uh, I got lost. And uh, so I stopped and asked for directions, and later she says, wow, that was really cool. I think you're a pretty cool guy after all. <laughs> you stopped and asked for directions. And so I think reinforcing that, but a lot of expectations. And we, you know, it's a very, very slow process when you have, um, I think, the still wrong, still a very powerful component of our society, American society, and it varies throughout the world in different cultures, but here in America, there's a still a strong core of individuals in the country that really believe in the traditional masculine femininity, femininity role models. Uh, yeah, I want, I want to play this out just a little bit further, this discussion of the, the guard at the, at the school. What would, the, what would our conversation be like if that guard had been a woman and didn't go into the school? Yeah, I think the, the conversation is a, it doesn't, for either side, become about the preparation or the traits. It becomes he's less of a man. Or if it were a woman, my guess would be, well, women, women probably aren't equipped to do this anyway, right? Some sort of false narrative about mm-hmm. how gender would influence or how gender would interact with your own personal training and resolve and that sort of uh, piece. So that's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. Jennifer? Yeah, no, I think I think that I think that's all right on. I think that makes yeah. I, I think that, I think that's exactly right. And you see, you know, you'll see uh, when I was actually living in Canada, there was an example of um, a female police officer. If I can get the example uh, right in my head, uh, it was a while ago, and I believe she didn't use force. Uh, she was basically trying to tackle a, a suspect, um, trying to detain someone, and there was a big outcry as to why she didn't use more force and what was, you know, and, and sort of this expectation of, you know, a police officer should be doing particular kinds of things, and you know, the the you know women doing that role raises a lot of sort of cognitive dissonance. So um, I think that that's yeah, I, I think that all makes sense. Um, but I also think, I mean, listening to everybody, uh, everybody talk, um, you know, I think that there is, you know, there's, there's always a risk when we're talking about things like toxic masculinity um, and masculine norms of actually reifying the thing that we're trying to destabilize and think through. Um, and I do think that there is, you know, there's scholars um, like Kristen Bridges, CJ Pasco, um, Jocelyn Hollander, who are really thinking, Mike Messner is another uh, gender scholar. They're, they're thinking through sort of what they call hybrid masculinities. Um, so these are um, masculinities that are, um, you know, integrate um, elements of compassion and care work. Um, so uh, Mike Messner has this great article on, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as a politician, kind of uh, integrating, um, he calls it the kindergarten uh, commando. So integrating sort of this hardened care work with this massive bravado. Um, and so what you actually see are there are spaces where, where and it's, it's in very particular, you know, context where men are kind of integrating different, uh, different elements that we might from the, you know, from the outside say, oh, that's not really masculine. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think actually masculinity is, I mean, it's changing, it's more complicated, and really the other piece of this that we haven't talked at all about is that it intersects with other lines of difference, sexuality, race, class. Hmm. Um, so these things also matter in terms of shaping, um, you know, what, expect, what are the particular expectations that are, are placed on men and what are their sources of identity. And I think when we ask this question of why are men so fragile, we have to ask, well, is masculinity, you know, is, is, how much is masculinity central to their identities? Um, and I think that's a, that's a really big part of the, the puzzle as well. Bill, what do you think? How much of masculinity can just be attributed to biology? Well, I think this nature-nurture has been a long-studied uh, concept and a lot of debate on that. The, uh, I mean, we'd certainly have testosterone as part of that. 
Uh, I think different authors have different perspectives. I, I think we can't minimize the impact of culture and impact of socialization. Um, and related to that, and I think, you know, expanding on, on a comment that um, I think as, as a parent or a person who has, uh, you know, this, uh, a strong influence on, on a young child and then, then a, a boy in, in the adolescence is, is for them to reinforce them being themselves, owning their own identity. And I think that's very, very difficult when the expectations are pretty strict and, pr- or, you know, pretty rigid is that uh, and reinforce the fact that you know they may look at the world differently relative to gender expression and the reinforcing the individuality and then reinforcing the idea that you own your own self and so maybe a, an aspect of that is 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 for an individual to be more comfortable about that is to be a differentiate what they've been told what it's like to be a, a boy or a young man, but what, in contrast to what they really feel. And to be able to differentiate that is maybe one aspect of, you know, of becoming mature, because they certainly get the messages, but they may not look at the world that way, they may not feel that way, and there may be a lot of emotional struggle and difficulties until they're able to differentiate what they've been told and what, what's it like to be a boy or man and what they really truly feel. And I think that idea is getting stronger with the more of the individuals revealing uh, their identity uh, as not necessarily bipolar, that there's all kinds of variations in that. And culture is beginning to understand that uh, in a lot of different ways. Some organizations, corporations are not asking on job applications or other things, male or female. You know, they have an entire range on that. And, and I give credit to a lot of particularly the young people, they're challenging that. And I think they're forcing culture to look at uh, that there's a lot of different ways to be person and to be human. And uh, and they may have the struggles with that, but I think in a lot of ways they're becoming themselves more uh, comfortable about identify as maybe both or none or I don't even have a label. We got we got a question that I think is probably aimed for you, Bill, but Jesse, you might want to weigh in too. But women have had dialogues and conversations about what it means to be a woman for decades. Will we ever see the same movement in men? I think so. And I think, you know, the um, Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities, you know, Division of APA, uh, it was born out of feminist thought, right? The idea of what does it mean to be a woman? And then the reality was the default was being a man is, you know, some sort of uh, default entity. And so then the question became, okay, what does it really mean to be a man? And how can we explore these pieces of masculinity? And Jennifer made a point earlier that I really like the idea of the categories we put forward to measure and assess that often are useful, but they often become the expectations that push against what we're trying to do. Right? So Bill's point he made earlier really sticks with me is this is a generational thing. We look back in 20 years down the road, mm-hmm. what's it going to look like, right? When these boundaries become a little bit more diffused and people have more expressive space mm-hmm. in between on the continuum as opposed to in the, in the boxes. I mean, there are organizations that uh, only men are invited. And, you know, through time, I think that'll be interesting to see um, uh, see that because you know it really depends on the bipolar. A lot of those organizations are maybe reinforcing the traditional perspective, maybe of support groups or groups of just education. Yet we see, for example, in sexual violence and sexual assault, a lot of organizations are are working on that issue of men not expressing their frustration, anger through you know through violence. And some of those uh, those groups are doing really a good job on that. You know, we only have three minutes to go, so I want to give each of you uh, like a minute to kind of sum up. And Jennifer, I want to start with you. I mean, any, any last points that you haven't gotten to that you'd like to make? Um, well, I missed the question because my, my phone actually got cut out. But, um, yeah, I think I, I would like to just kind of piggyback what, on what I heard uh, at the tail end there, um, which is that, yes, I think there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of movement happening. Um, there is there are campaigns like, uh, for example, my strength is not for hurting. Um, there are bystander intervention campaigns um, encouraging boys and men. We should also think about uh, self defense among women um, in terms of you know really broadly defined in terms of kind of uh, 
calling out and stopping uh, sexual assault and harassment as it happens. Um, I think that there is a lot. Um, obviously, Me Too is a, is a huge movement that in some ways is um, it's fascinating that this is the moment um, that this movement has exploded. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, I think the fact that we're having this conversation um, actually says a lot about um, what the possibilities are for the, the, you know, the moment right now. So I would just like to end on actually a positive note uh, with regard to all of that. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jesse? You know, we've talked a lot of the professional piece, but I want to end it with a personal piece. You know, I have two teenage sons and a teenage daughter. And to think about the era that they're moving towards is mm-hmm. um, daunting, but also promising in terms of them being their true selves. Um, and then understanding positive consent and understanding all these other dynamics that are going to allow them to be their own unique individuals, being a man, being a woman, being themselves. Um, so I'm optimistic, and I've enjoyed listening to what my colleagues and, and we've been talking about today. Okay, Bill, last minute. Well, I think well said. I think both of you well said. I just like to reinforce that. I think it's a, it's a new time, it's a new day, and some of the things that are happening in culture is really forcing us to look at that. But of course, being on the university, I see all the young people, but I see them pushing things, uh, challenging. Uh, aspects of masculinity and femininity that are probably hurtful for the individual and hurtful for society. And I'm optimistic also that, that things are going to change and be interesting to, to look down the line, like you say, to, to see, um, see what happens on that. All right. We are out of time. It's a great conversation today. I really appreciate our all three of our guests, Jennifer Carlson from the University of Arizona and Jesse Steinfeld and Bill Yarber from Indiana University. For Sarah Whitmire, producer Angela Batista and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.